Hey guys. So a few weeks ago, we got a DM in our inbox from Caroline Calloway herself saying that she'd like to come on the pod. Caroline is on this DIY press tour right now to promote her new book and basically going on every single podcast she can. And while we figured she had never fucking listened to our episode about her, we were like, you know what? We simply cannot pass up this opportunity. So please enjoy this special interview with Caroline. We promise the next season will be out very, very soon. We are in the middle of recording the first batch of episodes and we're super excited for what we've got in store for you. So stay tuned for the next season. And until then, hope you like this episode. Hi, everyone. We are here today with the one and only Caroline Calloway, who's come on the pod for a very special episode to talk about her new, long-anticipated book, Scammer. For those of you who don't know, Caroline got her start as an early Instagram influencer known for her long, poetic captions and aspirational lifestyle. In 2019, she came to notoriety after a series of creativity workshops, as well as a searing expose by her friend Natalie in The Cut, in which Natalie took credit for ghostwriting Caroline's captions, as well as a portion of Caroline's unfinished memoir. Caroline then became known to the public as a scammer, a title she's since reclaimed. In 2020, she opened up a pre-order for Scammer, a book many people were skeptical would ever come to print. It's taken some time, and there are still people waiting on their copies, but three years later, Scammer has been completed, and we got to read it. So thank you so much for being with us today, Caroline. We're very excited to you. join. <laughs> and let's not get one thing twisted. Those people are going to keep waiting because it's going to take me like a month to ship out the rest of these copies. I'm gluing in these Italian marbled end papers by hand. I'm signing, numbering every copy. I'm gift wrapping them all. It's really like, even though I've just hired new employees to help me in the workshop, maybe elf is the right corporate term for the position that they're filling, book elves. Even with the new employees, like we're at a maximum of like 150 books per day and we still have thousands of orders to fill. So don't hold your breath is what I'm saying, but it's coming. (laughs) Certainly within this summer, within this summer. It's going to become a rite of passage to be like, I didn't get my Caroline Calloway book for five whole years. And that's something that will be remembered. I know. Yeah. So Elephant in the Room, we did an episode on you early on in our podcast. I was the one who covered you and sort of ended up guiding a lot of the conversation and like the general tone of the episode. And like, to be completely honest, like when you reached out about coming on the show, we were both a bit nervous because, well, we didn't like, I don't think we said anything too harsh. It like wasn't like a fully complimentary episode either. And I guess I'm just kind of curious about like why you reached out about coming on the show. Honestly, I wanted to come on this podcast because the way that I've, I've been doing all my own publicity, I've been arranging all my interviews with reporters, sending out all the copies to reporters myself. I don't have like a 
publisher or a publicist to do this stuff for me. So for podcasts, where I started was I typed my own name into the Apple podcast search bar. And then I made a little list of all the podcasts who had ever done an episode on me. And I just sort of thought, well, these guys are shoo-ins. They'll definitely have me on their show. And then I just reached out to all of you. And what do you know? A hundred percent yeses across the board. So I just thought that would be a really easy place, like low-hanging fruit for me to start with like booking podcasts. And I just don't have like, since I have so many books to send out, I just like don't have a lot of time to like I don't know. You know, I tried going through chat GBT to be like, make me a list. Like my demographic is X, Y, Z, like urban, higher education, like females, ages, like, I don't know what I said, like 18 to 38 or something like millennial women make me a list. But chat GBT only goes through 2021. So like the top 20 podcasts they made like in the list that it made me like half of them were no longer even still doing episodes because like the lifespan of podcasts is like it doesn't really like go on past like a three years except in like rare cases well exactly. we've we've been critical of chat gbt also on this podcast so we're really glad it doesn't know who we well, are yeah chat gbt <laughs> can help me out so i had to do it the hard way i had to roll up my sleeves type in my own name to apple podcasts and then slide into dms and just knock them off and i do i do like one podcast a day you know i i moved to florida because i like don't have any friends here or really like any people I want to date here. I don't go to parties. Like I just, I wake up, I have my coffee, I do some work, I answer emails, I do my podcast. Usually I have an interview at 11. Um, I didn't today, but I have two tomorrow. And then I glue books until like six. And then from like six to 11, I eat dinner and I work on the next books. And then from like 11 to two, I come back because I'm usually wasted at that point and I stick stickers. That's like my sticker time. This is beautiful because one of my friends who's a very big fan of you was like, I just want her to make, she read our questions and she was like, I just want her to make lifestyle vlogs and I kind of just want to know what every hour of her day is like. So this is perfect. (laughs) You already does shit out. We also, we did really, when you reached out to us, we were like, she hasn't listened to the podcast episode. We were like, she's definitely name searched and then was like hitting all the all the places for publicity. So I love someone who maybe disagrees with some of the things that I've done or has some questions about it because I've usually found that most people who who have really strong opinions on me, like or or even just like the Reddit's an extreme example, but I do think that there uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I've totally fucked up and made many a mistake in my time. There are lots of things that people say I've done that I haven't done. Like, for example, people say that I sold tickets to my creativity workshops without booking any venues. And, like, the truth is, like, I didn't book venues that were over, I think it was, like, three months in the future. So, like, I'd booked all the ones within the coming three months. And then I was going to take, like, a one-month break. And then I hadn't booked the ones that were, like, beyond that. So, like, that, when people are like, I really hate that you did that, I'm like, well... I didn't fucking do that. So I think we didn't place a lot of we don't really like to place very much value judgment on the people we talk about, except for maybe in our Dime Square episode a little bit. But like we didn't I don't think we really placed much value judgments on what you've done. Honestly, I think that we were pretty 
empathetic in our episode for the most part, especially when it came to the Natalie you stuff. You the Dime Square episode? Wait, how did you even find, like, what? how has Dime Square infiltrated Toronto? Dude, we're so close. We're, like, so culturally adjacent to New York. We're just, like, New York's loser cousin. <laughs> yeah, like, we get everything, like, six months later. We get New York, like, hand-me-downs, but, like, we get it. Wait, that's crazy. I mean, we were doing more of a history of it anyways, as it kind of falls in line with the dirtbag left. But yeah, it's 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 come over. It's crossed over. I hate Dime Square too. I really feel like I had to debase my own morals. Like I really felt like a politician taking like gun lobby money. Do you know what I mean? Like I really felt like in in order to like let that crowd like polish my own reputation and just sort of like like I don't think there's a publicist in the world that could have like done the image rehab that just like Dime Square did for me by like except and it wasn't just like they were doing it for me personally like the whole stick of Dime Square was like we're accepting these like suddenly being canceled is like the height of of cool in like the white hot center of like downtown New York I was like sign me up and then I got there and I was like I hate it here <laughs> I was like I feel so morally bankrupt but even though I felt like it was really the right thing for my career I'm glad that was a season and not like a it was the internet equivalent of a, a kickback almost but yeah. it happened yeah and totally you've totally. recovered but I think to start I just wanted to say like well actually Hannah you go first oh well I just wanted to say I mean like you haven't listened to the episode but I in the episode I I say that the book isn't coming and like Clearly, I'm eating my words because the book is here, and, and I that's really why I wanted to come on your podcast. <laughs> no, I'm and we liked it. So a couple, like I just wanted to kind of go into what I liked about it for people who haven't read it. Like in the book, I thought the prose was very striking and the visuals were really potent. There were some lines that I was like, I love this, and I wrote it down immediately in my notes app. Like you had one line, I think it was about the sun in Florida or like the beach. And you were like, as if someone forgot to download the world that day. And I was like, wow, gorgeous line. Or when you were describing the monotony of life in Florida. And you said, every identical day takes a bite out of my beauty. And I was like, as someone this summer who was having the most uninteresting summer of their lives, I was like, I'm wasting every single minute and I'm, second. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I am wasting my Like, I am, I'm out here in these beaches wasting my bikini days of my <laughs> early days. But thank you. That's really, really, that's, yeah. Yeah. But, Overall, like, I found the book to be really compelling and digestible. Thank I think you. we both did. And yeah, I think we both really enjoyed reading it. So we're excited to see what you put out after this. And we're very excited to dive in, as they say. Thank you. That's really <laughs> kind of you, Maya. I really appreciate that. Of course. Also, I guess I'll correct for the listeners, but it's actually Maya. Oh, my God. Thank you so much, Maya. Uh, yeah, can you no worries. No, thank you so much for correcting me. Can you imagine <laughs> if I spent this whole fucking podcast calling you Maya? People do it in real life all the time. People who've known her and, like, corresponded with her will still go back and call her Maya. It's not phonetic, to be honest. Like, my parents set me up for failure, so it's fine. So you explain this in the book, but just for listeners, you know, who haven't been keeping up and who haven't read Scammer yet, why did you decide that now is finally the time to write Scammer? You know, I really feel like Natalie's used me. And I, you know, I should stop saying I feel this way. I think most people would factually agree that historically speaking, Natalie has used me three times in my life. Once when I was going like minorly viral for the creativity workshops, she reached out to the cut and 
pitch this, like, they didn't go to her. Like, she went to them being like, let me tell you about how terrible Carolyn Calloway really is. And really did a compelling job of making me seem not just um, stupid and incapable of building a brand or of writing my own content, but also really, like, erased my Adderall addiction from the record so that, like, everything I did as an addict, like, high out of my mind on drugs, she really made it seem like my baseline personality. So the world also thought that I was just, like, a fundamentally terrible person. And, like, I will be the first to admit that I'm crazy, but, like, I just don't think it's too much to ask to be, like, like, I'm fine if people think I'm, like, a little wacky or a dreamer or, I don't know, eccentric. But to, like, have the things that I did, like, in amphetamine psychosis, like, ripping up the carpeting in my dorm room as, like, the baseline personality of, like, who I am. Like, I found that very unreasonable. But obviously... She got her pay- she got her paycheck. She got her five grand, and I feel like the second time she used me was two days after that piece came out when my father's body was found. For context, Caroline's father tragically died by suicide right around when Natalie's piece came out in the cut. And I feel like she really tried to use his suicide to strike a business deal. She offered me her friendship and her forgiveness and $15,000 if I would just sign over the like hours after his body had been found, if I would sign over my life rights to her. And I ended up saying no, but I wasn't angry about being used in that way because I was just like grieving my father. The third time that she used me was I actually didn't find out about it until this past winter. A friend of mine who's in publishing in Toronto's cooler older cousin New York leaked a copy of Natalie's book proposal to me and I was just plastered all over this thing like in her book she ends up like making the middle part like not about me although the beginning and the ending are in her book proposal she's like I'll tell you more about Caroline's addiction like I'll expand the cut essay I'll have essays about this about Caroline and you know I think I was really only able to feel that anger once I had sort of like healed from the public shaming of of her betrayal and the bereavement of my father's suicide. And my grandma also died. And I was just finally in like a quiet enough place in my life where I could like feel my own anger. And I was so fucking pissed. Like, I don't know why it took me three times to finally feel so sick to fucking death of being used but when I saw this proposal this past January I was like oh hell no oh hell fucking no like like if you want to be a memoirist so bad bitch get your own fucking life like stop using my life to get paid and I think anger I think of all the emotions is probably known as being like one of the most destructive and like one of the most like blind and just sort of chaotic. But I really think that like rage plus purpose can be incredibly powerfully constructive. And I had a goal, which was to put out my book, not just before her book came out, not just put it out before her, not just tell them the truth, but to prove to people how well I could really write and to just sort of crumble the whole premise of the brand that she's built for herself, which is that, you know, 
she wrote my Cambridge captions, which she didn't, or that she was the brains behind my brand, which she wasn't. And just sort of put that to bed and really, honestly, just like block her book from having any more success off of my name and my face and my life story. It seems like the book almost was almost therapeutic for you in a way, kind of like a way of ordering your thoughts and feelings about the entire situation. And as you read it, you can kind of feel that like, it seems like you're kind of thinking in real time, in, in real time, if that makes sense. When people ask me, like, why did you, why do you want to be a famous memoirist? Like, why, like, why not even write like, I don't know, like a fantasy series about like Harry Potter-esque, but it's Cambridge, like, which does sound like vaguely appealing to me. The, there are two answers to like, why memoir? And one is like, light schizophrenia like one is just like I've always felt destined for this and this is what I've always known like I must do it's very like Joan of Arc to be totally honest like I even internally like flip-flop about like how real those delusions are like how self-fulfilling is like did that only come true because I believed it would come true like to what extent did that confidence um propel me to like do the things I needed to do to make it come true. That's one That's one answer of why memoir. I just always felt that was my purpose in this world. And the other answer is that I think that growing up with an unstable parent, I don't know if you guys have really happy childhoods or if you are funny and have a sense of humor. Um, but... Um, no, I'm that's, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> if you're out there and you had a really happy childhood, I'm sorry for implying that you don't have a personality. It's my way of feeling like at least my trauma gave me something. No, I'm sorry to drag you into it, um, anonymous listeners. But I think growing up with a really unstable parent in order to like stay safe, and you know, my dad had in addition to like agoraphobia and obviously depression because he killed himself and hoarding. Um, he had really bad rage problems, which could be another reason that I took me so long to access my own anger. But I felt growing up like I always had to be really attentive to like what his mood was and the small um, signs of like when his moods would change and and I would be or my mom would be like unsafe. And I think growing up that way really dislocates your like sense of self. You no longer have a pulse on your emotions and instead you're always keeping track of other people's emotions. And sometimes I think that I've always been so overwhelmingly compelled towards memoir because it's like the one occupation where I get to reconnect with like how I see the world and how I feel about the world and like it almost takes this like intensive state of creative meditation, like that is writing memoir and editing memoir and editing it again and again and again until it's polished and perfect to like reconnect with like my state of self. I mean, for me, like the thing that draws me to memoirs as a genre the most is when you really feel like you've tapped into someone's mind and their point of view. And uh, it's scammer. It's like undeniable that it just really feels specific like there's a meta quality to it that like really makes it clear that you're reading Caroline Calloway's view of the world and also Caroline Calloway like the fan of memoirs when I was on OnlyFans I spent over fifty thousand dollars collecting wait no sorry twenty thousand dollars collecting rare female memoirs and then when my grandma died I got an inheritance of fifty thousand dollars um, which I needed like $60,000 to print the books to like print the first bit of scammer. And 
you won't believe what I did. Instead of saving that money, I spent it all on rare female memoirs and then earned back the 60 grand that I needed to print Scammer by selling tarot card readings. 60 grand for the tarot cards? Tarot cards was like printing money, printing it. Literally, th- those those things were flying off the shelves. And I think it was just because like, you know, in my whole time online, I've always really, because I'm aware that my demographic is like bougie bitch because I'm a bougie bitch and I like bougie bitch things and bougie bitches like me. But because I'm like so controversial, I've always tried to price things very high and make less of them because it's like you just want to target, like you want to mobilize sort of that top, like most sincere fans who are probably bougie bitches who come from like high income families who have like had some level of higher education. Um, But this was the first time that I'd made a product, which like the business model was like extremely low price point sell a ton. And it was it went gangbusters. It was great. Speaking of tarot cards or tarot cards. So you have this great quote where you say all my life, I wanted to be a famous memoirist, but we want our famous people to be role models. And we want our memoirists to be honest. You spoke about this when you went on the Celebrity Memoir Book Club podcast to defend Lena Dunham's book about the level of honesty and dishonesty that's afforded by memoirs. And I'm just wondering, how do you reconcile your aspirations as a memoirist with the role you occupy in pop culture as this sort of like dishonest figure? Is there room for dishonesty in the memoir? I'd be interested to hear you elaborate on that because I thought that discussion was really interesting. I really think that if there's any detail that doesn't fundamentally alter the emotional thrust and like overarching theme of the memory you're trying to convey. Like for example, if you can't remember what you wore to the grocery store and you, I don't know, insert the sound of like your flip-flops flapping against the asphalt. But like who knows if you were really wearing flip-flops that day or maybe even you remember later that it was like ton of shoes you just get a flash of that memory or or something like recreating dialogue like as long as you're doing it in the spirit of like just making a better experience for your reader and definitely not tampering with the memory itself like you don't want to ever put words into someone's mouth that they didn't say or um you know if you change like yes my father killed himself but like what if i say that like his body was what if what if there hadn't been like, I don't know, like proof or like, you know, what if I had just made up that I found out about my father's suicide, like the day not or two days after her piece came out, like, that's crazy. Like, you can't fuck with like the the actual, like, I would say big pillars of a story that like, support its emotional meaning. And, and also just like, general truth. But I think little like, um, little things like what specific dialogue no one can remember that what you're wearing or even just moving something that like doesn't affect the like if you move the chronology of like a big plot thing like father's suicide now you're writing fiction you know but if you wanted to move something that like didn't matter at all and wanted to like say have it in the same day but like really it happened the same week but it just doesn't matter at all for the story you're just trying to make like a beautiful turn of phrase or just like give your reader the sense of like time passing go for it is how I feel about it and you know I do think that like people think of me as a liar 
which is unfortunate because I do think that I'm like painfully honest in my writing. But I also have made my peace with it because, you know, I was a bit of a liar in my early 20s. I don't know how you guys were at like age 21, 22, 23, but I was just railing lines of Adderall, lying my fucking face off, just like being a generally like just chaotic person. Like, I mean, I was like, I wasn't the first nor will I be the last drug addict who told a bunch of lies, you know, like I was, I was a liar and I... Yeah, and I I think that there should be, like, some karma and consequences for that. But I also think that, you know, I've spent the last, like, five, six years of my life being, like, a pretty great person and taking, like, recovery really seriously and really, yeah, just trying to really hold myself to a higher personal standard. And I also think that I'm finally seeing like karma and consequences for that. Like I think every year that passes, people take me more seriously as not just like a cultural icon, but a writer. Yeah, I think the book was really candid. And that's something that struck me. I think there's like a lot of naked vulnerability, you know, in the way you talk about the various like multiple tragedies you experienced um, in your family over the past few years. I think there was also candidness in this kind of like Lena Dunham style of provocation. There's like kind of the two forms of candidness I was getting from the book. And I guess let's just like address, like not address this, but let's get to this earlier on, I guess. I think the big thing that jumped out of the book for a lot of people was your description of getting turned on by Natalie describing her sexual assault. And I know you've been getting some backlash for it. But you also talk a lot about the way Natalie exploited your traumas for her own story. So I'm wondering, like, what do you think the line is between using people you know for material and exploiting them, especially within memoir? Like, when does it enrich a work, do you think? And when does it undermine a work? Yes, I actually, you know, I don't feel like I ever got more backlash than these two podcasts um, that I did, Celebrity Memoir Book Club and uh, this other podcast called Be There in Five. And I really have been so grateful at how much the more like um, literary and like esteemed publications like Vogue and The New Yorker and The Washington Post have all been so supportive of that artistic choice. And really, um, I mean, Vogue and The Washington Post didn't even question it at all. And The New Yorker was like, this is Natalie thinks it's okay, or th- thinks it's not okay. But like, they passed no moral judgment on whether it was good or bad. If I had to choose whether, you know, like three millennial white women or the three publications of the Washington Post Vogue and the New Yorker, like whose artistic, I don't know, criteria I would rather um, not just like meet but exceed, I would definitely go with bougie bitch that I am, I would go with those legacy media blue chip literary publications. And if I need to piss off some millennial white women in the process, you know, so be it won't, like, I'll live. But the way I really thought about it of trying to make that choice is I didn't really think of it as like a tit for tat, like Natalie exploited my trauma, I'm going to exploit hers or hurt her back. I think a lot of women who have had like, um, I think troubled relationships with women, I've noticed how they like, I think really project that onto me. Like they, 
they've talked about how I was like really cruel to Natalie or like how I, you know, I call her fat in the book, but I really, I also say she has an adorable pot belly and mean it in like a really like bouncy, sexy, like squishy way. And like so many fucking women have been like, when you insulted her by calling her adorable pot belly or calling her fat. And I think it's just like really indicative of like internalized fat phobia, like fat, short, thin, brown hair, green eyes. Like this is, these are physical descriptors that should not be insults. And I think if you see them as that, like you're really, you're bringing your relationship to women and how they've body shamed you to like my pros and forcing it down my throat in a way that's not true. It really came down to this. So Natalie's story of sexual assault was a big part of her cut piece. She wrote about it very publicly and, you know, privately, like within our friendship, she, the story, there's more to the story that she didn't choose to write about. And I, when I decided to include that moment in my book, I really thought, okay, either I'm going to, I'm going to let down one of two demographics here. Either I'm going to let down Natalie by mentioning this, even though getting wet, and even though I was crying as I got wet, like getting wet is, even though it's a involuntary, like emotional response, like that you, you don't ask your body to do and you can't control to even say it, it could potentially like let down Natalie. But also, I think, you know, I have a lot of really good friends who are bi, and I think something that really fascinates me as what I want to contribute as an artist to society is making art for, like, bi women. God bless Gen Z and Gen Alpha, like, with TikTok. Like, they have – it's so cool to be bi now. Like, not just normalized. Like, it's actually, like – I love the way that they're embracing queerness and it makes my little bi heart sing to see them. Our only bi exposure growing up for bi women was Tila Tequila's show on MTV. They made a laughing stock of her. Like, yes, at least there was some exposure and she was a pioneer and like, I'm grateful it wasn't nothing, but like it was really seen as like, it, it not, it wasn't only fetishized. It was also like, it was othered. Yes, it was it was not only sexualized, but also mocked and deeply othered. That's a great verb for it. I really wanted to make art for that demographic of women. And I think women who came of age and discovered their attraction to women, I think the moments when they discovered that attraction really ranged anywhere from unconventional to like being attracted to, I don't know, like a really buxom cartoon character. or to straight up fucked up, like being the first time, like I never sought out lesbian porn. I never really saw any sort of media that was like geared towards the female gaze. I think I would be letting down the, that demographic of reader of femme presenting millennial bi girls by not unburdening them of that shame of how they all like, you know, I have a friend who like the first time she realized she was attracted to women was she was like changing with her friend and like trying on clothes and just being around her body. And like, that's really fucked up. We're not exposed. And on top of that, we don't seek out like moments of sapphic arousal because we're just so on autopilot. Like 
being dated by men and being pursued by men and getting male validation that I just wanted to unburden that demographic of some shame. And so I realized that either choice, I would let one party down. I would let Natalie down or I would let that demographic down because whatever shame they're currently holding about their first time being attracted to a woman, they would keep holding that because there's no fucking example at all of anyone being honest about this. I really don't owe loyalty or my silence to Natalie at this point anymore. And so once I made that choice, the next choice was how do I write about it in a way that I feel ethical about personally? Um, And for me, that was going back to Natalie's cut essay. And I went back to her cut essay and I wanted to get very clear on like what extent of the story she made public. And she talked about being topless. She, I think exact wording from the cut was sticky chest And so that language in hand, I like copied and pasted it literally into a Word document when I was working on that chapter. And I went about writing that scene where I would not step over anything that she had made public already um, and just sort of stick to the version of the story that she wanted, that she chose um, to have on the record. And I put it in the book. It actually reminded me just in the way that it kind of att- like kind of gets to the heart of this very uncomfortable unspoken thing in our world that like maybe people do feel. It kind of reminded me of that whole aspect of Lena Dunham's book when she talks about her sister and the two of them growing up together that people took and ran with after the book came out. Are you a little worried that this might like eclipse the rest of the contents of the book once the book gets a wider release? You know, I was more worried about it before, like, those major publications like Vogue and New Yorker and The Washington Post had come out with their reviews and, like, really so firmly sided with me um, and, like, the quality of my book. Um, I was worried about it, and it was something I thought about. But, you know, I really – like, those really esteemed publications that I look up to a lot, like, they – If you live for the rave review from legacy media, you'll die going viral as a scam. Like that's really like the cherry on top and not like the baseline motivator. Like for me, it really just had to be like, do I feel personally within my ethics that I'm doing the right thing? Because, you know, something that Natalie did was I had never once talked about um, suicidal ideation. That's such a stale turn of phrase. I hate it so much, but I don't even know. I'd never even said that I'd even considered suicide at all. The first time that it ever became part of the public record was when she wrote about it in her cut essay. And I just really felt like I wasn't ready to discuss that. And I hated that she took away my agency and made that choice for me. And, you know, having been through that experience at her hands and knowing that I wouldn't literally would not wish it on her. um, But more than that, like also having experienced sexual assault myself, like I feel very, I feel like I did what is like right for me. And because what I really care about is like not being a trash person and not making her feel the way that I felt when she, you know, these things that we told each other, they weren't on the record. We weren't journalists. We weren't giving interviews. It was a friendship. And I really felt so it was heartbreaking to see her take those things that I told her within the secrecy of like a real, what I thought was like love. And um, yeah, as long as I never did that and made her like stoop to that level. And as long as I was like 
really writing from a place of making the most powerful art with the maximum amount of meaning to the readers that I care about. Like I, I could have lived even if they hated it. It's just, you know, it's, it's icing on top that they don't. And do I think that like a larger like release will mean that like more people will like rise up and dislike it. I mean, it might, but it's like, it's a risk I'm willing to take. And I, it might, but I really don't think that will happen because I think once those major legacy media publications like come out, I think society, I think society and culture in general sort of toes the line. Like I think they very much, it's not so much that they tell people what to think. It's that they hire the best and brightest to think for money and publish those thoughts. It's when can you think of the last time that like, I don't know that like mainstream media, like loved a book and that like the nation rose up and was like, we hate this book. Like, I don't think it's ever happened. Lena Dunham, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like for Lena Dunham's book, it was like the publications that were very much like against it as well. Like I felt like it was in the headlines, you know, it felt like a gotcha moment. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think she was really unfairly crucified for that. Well, it was like a public, and I don't know, maybe you relate to this because of, you know, the reputation that you've had leading up to Scammer, but like the public was waiting for Lena Dunham to like undermine her message as like someone who's a feminist and pro-woman. And like, this was like, even though I don't think that what she was expressing was at all anti-feminist and it was like a deeply personal thing, I think people were just like looking for the seed to like... Like they were, they were looking for us something to latch on to, and totally. So you were calling yourself a memoirist before you ever wrote a memoir, and um, in a way, like your Instagram captions did pioneer a new offshoot of the genre. Like I remember learning about oh, you in a Man Repeller article, talking I about it, that <laughs> like so many years ago. Yeah, and th- so I mean that was when I learned about you, and then heard about you again through the the cut piece but like the tone of that article was like wow look at how people are pioneering these like new platforms to um to kind of like break their way into the literary world and I was just curious like now that you've written your own memoir do you feel there's a difference between you know what you were doing online chronicling your life and the actual like book I guess like the traditional do you consider what you're doing before memoir (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm definitely gonna start calling all books trad books from now on. That, trad <laughs> that's book. incredible. I love I love that we got to workshop that joke together. That's two things. One, when I say I've always wanted to be a famous memoirist, I actually really feel like language fails me and the only thing that I can compare it to is when during like 2014, 2015, when I was writing those Instagram captions. The word influencer didn't exist yet. It would be years until the Federal Trade Administration, which is like our government trade bureau, would like make laws about disclosing hashtag ads. Like we didn't yet even have like the the linguistic, but even like the intellectual framework with which to like imagine the influencer economy and like native digital marketing and sponsored posts and all these things that we now have terms for. And I wa- I knew I wanted to like build a following and then s- 
not have to go through a website, but have it be on social media and like sell, give away content on social media for free, but then, then leverage that what we would now call a parasocial relationship. But then like, I would have like called like, I don't know, the bond or something like that, just like, like grasping for language, but then leverage that bond into selling them things. Um, Cause that's like, a business model where like, you know, I write these stories for you for free while the costs to me are very real groceries, rent, therapy, what Adderall was really my main cost then. But, um, and in return, like you consume this content at no cost to you, but then when there's, then you sort of have like, it branches out in sort of a why business model where like either you can then sell access to your audience to other advertisers or you can advertise a product, your own makeup brand or your own book directly to them, your own trad book um, directly to them. And I, what I'm trying to say is that I wanted to be an influencer before the word influencer existed. And when I say I want to be a famous memoirist, I feel that same feeling. I don't think famous memoirist is the right word. It's, it's something more with performance art. It's something more with the internet. It's something more because I didn't just want to like have any old life happen to me. Like I wanted, and it, but it's also not like I wanted a specific plot to happen to me. It it was really never about the plot. It was always about backdrop. Like I wanted access to these worlds that I was not born into and I wanted to get there and get in and soak up every little detail. And then I wanted to make art about whatever the fuck happened to me while I was like inside those worlds. And I just don't think that there's a word for it. I want to be this thing that like doesn't, that I don't have language for. Um, So that's one thought that I had while you were asking that. Like I, yes, I always wanted to be a famous memoirist, but it's not even really that. It's something, it's more performance arty. It's more like theater of the self and of the online age. And there's just no language for it yet. But I do hope I live to see us. I I hope I live to see the same like etymolo- etymological revolution happen that has like happened with the the language and the sort of ideological scaffolding around like influencers and influencer marketing. And the other thing is, do I think Instagram's the same as a trad book? No. But but that being said, like, yes, they're different mediums with different different media with different pros and cons. Instagram, there's real-time feedback. You can uh, tag handles. You can create these little, like, portals where you can, like, go off to other pages. You can um, use emojis and it doesn't look weird. You get to create include photos obviously with every post but you know they're cons there you get addicted to the real-time feedback people can comment and like um that can hamper what you're willing to share as an artist you have to tether it to a photo you can't just write for writing's sake it has to be linked so like if you don't have an image of what you want to write about like that hurts the the quality of the the creative output and with traditional books i you know you It's harder to include emojis or colored images. You can't tag people and like it takes forever to get them done unless you're really angry and working on a deadline with your like arch nemesis, in which case you can really crank that shit out. But um, but so they are very different media in my mind, but I do not and I will die on this fucking hill. I do not think that a sentence typed by thumbs into the black mirror of an iPhone and posted on social media should be inherently dumber, less valued, 
taken less seriously than the same sentence printed in a book. Like we still have a very real and destructive and just sort of toxic bias towards social media posts that I think is silly. I think they're different media, but I don't think that we should automatically think one is so inherently smarter and more valuable than the other. Yeah, as someone who does YouTube oh, you do. for YouTube a living, for like full time job. Oh my god, no! I way. do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. What sort of stuff do you talk about? I make video essays that are kind I of like film analysis. <laughs> you should you check it out. Me, Hannah works on it too. Fucking video essays I'm listening to as I fucking like that eleven to two a.m. time period where I'm drunk and I'm doing my stickers. <laughs> It is video essay o'clock. Like you may have come not- across it at some point, probably. Yeah, she's to be she's big. Wait, <laughs> no. Oh my God, oh my God. What is what is her YouTube channel called? It's Broey de Chanel. What is it? Bro- Broey de Chanel. I have seen you. Oh my, oh my God. God. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so crazy. Okay, I'm glad I've separated my personal identity from YouTube enough that that would not be. <laughs> But I, I struggle a lot with when people ask me what I do for a living. Like, I think of myself as a film critic because that is the work I'm trying to put out. And that is kind of the the actual crux of what I'm doing. And right now I'm ha- struggling with the way that SAG-AFTRA has asked uh, influencers to stop posting about stuff. And a lot of people consider me an influencer, but I actually don't think I am. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, it's, all, it's really hard to craft, carve out like this sort of artistic identity on the internet, or, like creative identity when you're a part of this larger platform that is really undervalued and devalued because it's so democratized. And I think if you think of yourself as a film critic, I think you should hold tight to that and not let anyone else like tell you like when I was writing my stories, like people wanted me to like, and of course one of the reasons I never did paid promotions. Well, actually in my whole life I did one, I think it was three slide Instagram story with Amazon about an anime TV show about a very mentally ill girl and her father because it pulled at my heartstrings and also Amazon threw like 10 grand at me to post like three Instagram story slides. And I felt like I could do it ethically because I could give them real data about my story views. Whereas like my Instagram will always have that like inflated 40,000 fake followers that I bought. So I feel really strange like selling grid I just never thought it would be right but anyways I did that one thing once but I generally say that I've never done sponsored posts and and it's true like on my grid like the different managers and agents I've had over the years have like really tried to be like no you're an influencer like you should do this to make money and I'm like I'm not like I am just building a fan base for free on Instagram so that I can sell books like I'm a writer and I just think it's back to the whole idea of like failure of language to like keep up with like the advancements of the digital creator economy like you you definitely so if you think if you know deep down that you're a film critic and not an influencer like don't let SAG and everyone else tell you <laughs> who you are like I hope that you are able to preserve that sense of like artistic identity Thank you. I feel it in my heart as Good. much as I feel that you are a writer and you are. I feel like the the like concept of content has like had such a damaging effect on like people in our generations who are like have had to transition their focus onto the online sphere. Like it's beneficial to us, but it's also like 
that is the future and then we put this label of content on everything and then it, it like flattens yeah flattens yeah. it takes away like any individuality from it or like merit yeah no totally we we it's it is a failure of language we need more words to describe what is happening on the internet because we just it, language has not caught up to how quickly like content oh but you know what I mean is growing online. Yeah. If it's going to be a surrogate for the real world, then we may as well treat it as yeah, such totally. when it needs to be, you know. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. also Broey Deschanel is such a smart username. Oh, thank you. People all people think I'm related to Zoe Deschanel and I'm like that is can you imagine parents naming their kids Zoe and Broey? People are dumb. <laughs> so, like you write a lot about like the character of Caroline Calloway, you know, the the mood boards that you made for her and just sort of like you know the push and pull between like who you are and who this person is that like you've created for yourself in your Instagram but also like maybe just in the world and I'm just curious like now that you've written Scammer and like addressed her as a concept like do you feel like you're ready to retire the character of Caroline Calloway? Yeah you know something I really think I I failed is the wrong word because I really I really, every review that's called Scammer, quote unquote, a masterpiece, I wish I could sit here like a demure little lady and be like, and I was shocked, but I literally sat there being like, damn right. <laughs> like that, that, I wrote the fuck out of those 158 pages. But that being said, it's 158 pages. Like I, I, I was actually shooting for 140 because I knew I'd go over a little bit. Um, but I really wanted to make a book that could be read in a day, a day book, as I call it, in Scammer, and to sort of recreate that magnificent pleasure of, like, just finishing a book cover to cover in a single day that makes you feel like a little kid again, or at least if you were a nerd and had no friends. Um, but I think a lot of people who grew up to be really well-adjusted adults were readers, at, loved reading as kids. And um, I think that I did a lot of things like you just have to pack so much into 158 pages and I think I did that really well one thing that I do want to improve when I expand scammer to like the 300 page version of it called and we were like which won't have vignettes it'll be a more traditional like linear narrative memoir is something that I tried to do in scammer and I just don't think it really worked as well as I hoped it would is that I tried to stack like to sort of like a uh, stuff the beginning and really like front load the book with references to like the character of like, you know, I talk about um, <clears throat> um, reading books that I thought grownups would find impressive. I talk about changing my name. I talk about um, in college, choosing a major that the character of Caroline Calloway, the character would study. And in college, I talk about the mood board that you reference. I really tried to like front load those references to a character and then sort of like peter them out throughout the book and have them totally stop by like the same sort of section at the end. And I don't think that was successful as much as I thought of it or as, as much as I hoped it would be in when I was writing it. I, you know, I also, that being said, I don't think at 158 pages, you have to fucking choose your battles. Like, I had other themes that were more important to me in Scammer, like the way the bisexuality, uh, the way was we lie to 
others and to ourselves, the internet as a character, like there were, there were bigger things that I was worried about than like how I'm going to communicate my personal relationship to the character of Carolyn Calloway. Um, and I think in, and we were like, I'm going to make it more explicit because what I was trying to communicate and did not succeed in doing, because I've been answering a lot of these questions in press is that I thought about it a lot when I was little and I really before I had lived a life I really yeah it was really like a character it or character is the wrong word but it was like it was much more a thing that I was trying to be whereas like I no longer think about it at all now like at 31 like I mean it when I say I'm retired from the plot like and that's not just because like you know if I never went to another god willing one day Someday in the future, with many day books under my belt, I will don those orchids in my hair once more. And I will I will put on the ball gowns and lace up the white keds and I will go back out there into the world and interesting things will happen to me and I will go to interesting parties. But if that never happened, like if I never went to another party again and never had another interesting thing happen to me, the things the memories and experiences and friendships that I need to make the sort of art that I feel like is my purpose have happened. So like that's behind me. But on top of that, I also feel like I'm pretty set in my ways. You know, like when I imagined the character of Caroline Calloway at 19, I still felt so, I was very much like, I know Sylvia Plath's fig tree is about very much about occupation where like each branch is, um, like a different like you move to Paris or you become a doctor or whatever the fuck the different you're a housewife or whatever the different branches were and someone said something really funny to me while I was doing press that was like your fig tree is just like one giant stump with one fig with one fig at the top because I really only wanted to be Caroline Calloway but the the metaphorical fig tree of personality I still felt was very real like I still felt like I could grow up to be I don't know. I, I just felt very unformed. And I and rightly so. 19-year-olds aren't formed. Neither are 21-year-olds or 24-year-olds. Like, doesn't your, your prefrontal cortex or whatever stop developing at, like, what, 25, 26? Like, 25? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, and, you know, I think mine, honestly, um, I still had a lot of lessons to learn as a person well into 26 and 27 and 28, even 29. But like by then I felt like I'd really gotten a hold of like my relationship to amphetamines and, you know, I'd, I'd paid back my publishers and I'd gotten on the correct medication for anxiety and depression. And yeah, I just... I, I no longer think of it as a character so much because I also just don't think I have that much more wiggle room with like who I'm going to be. Like I think it's a, a stump with one fig for my professional life and a stump with one fig. Like I could grow a little bit, but not enough that I could make a mood board for that character. Like I am who I am at, the, at this point. But I, I hear the note and all the feedback from reporters has been very helpful. It Trust me, it is number one on my to-do list. Number one to fix for and we were like that I'm going to I'm going to really elucidate that relationship between character and self because it just it wasn't a priority in 158 pages but if I'm working with 300 plus pages I can absolutely and will do more with that I think it's just like it's something that really does stick out because like 
you know, Caroline Calloway is like a literary character and maybe like as the person you want to be, but then also like, I think we've kind of, I don't know, we've like come to see like influencers and people who like exist online is also portraying like a character, a crafted life. And it is like, I guess because there are so few Instagram celebrities turn like six, like accomplished writers that like it's we don't always get to see this like through line I guess of somebody who's like existed online and how you've like translated it to the book gonna, if that makes call sense call me an accomplished writer that's like the nice thing I mean, you said to me all podcast <laughs> thank you <laughs> I mean aren't you I mean um, you said it not me I mean yeah <laughs> I, I, people are saying that I'm an accomplished writer for sure <laughs> Hannah's gonna be public enemy number one on Small Bean Snark (laughs) tomorrow. Put it in your blurb, accomplished writer. Trust me, (laughs) don't worry about the Small Bean Snark people, and you guys should not read it. And I say this as someone who was, when I tell you I was terrorized by this Reddit for like truly like three to five years of my life. Like I like lived in fear of them as if like they were just like, my mercurial and tyrannical like overlords like I felt like I lived only at their mercy and something that really helped me process just the concept of their ex- their existence and their constant commentary on my mental health and every typo and every outfit and every pound I gain or don't gain or nudes on OnlyFans. I think they've st- I think they've made a rule against body shaming, but they literally have a category on the Reddit encouraging people to like repost my OnlyFans nudes for free. It's so toxic. But what really helped me with it was I did this uh documentary with Vice. I don't know if you guys ever saw it, it was really short. It's just like 20 minutes. We did our research. Oh nice. Really? Good job, you guys. Uh, me, I'm like, I typed in Carolyn Calloway to Apple Podcast, and I'm just here. I'm like, you've done an episode on me? That's crazy. Well, this is this is our job, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I when we shot that Vice documentary, it's only like 20 minutes of the film on YouTube. Well, we spent um, like almost a week filming it, and three days in particular we spent um, just doing burner phone stuff, like nine to five three days straight. I think I talked to like 300 people and it was, I was really expecting one of two things to happen when I finally, and for anyone, uh, for listeners, the premise was I got a burner phone or like a burner phone app, posted the number in this Reddit that hates my fucking guts and was like, call me. I'd love to talk to you for a project I'm doing. So I spent three days talking to them, sun up to sundown. And I was really expecting one of two things to happen. I thought either they'd be like, I thought this was unlikely, but I thought there was a chance that they'd be like sort of like weirdly sycophantic. Like they'd like try to like really like suck up to me. Like even though that they expressed to hate me online, once they talked to me that they'd be like weirdly suck up-y. But I thought more likely that they'd just hate me, that they'd just be like how they were on Reddit. And, you know, I'd like answer the phone and like they'd already be screaming, like just like, just so angry. Um, What happened was neither of those things. I would say out of like 300 people, truly like 298, like truly all but two people, all they wanted to do was talk about themselves and their problems in their lives. 
And they were not interested in me at all. They really just wanted to tell me about like who they were and what was going on in their lives. And it really helped me realize that these people like just want, like it's really, I know you can say like, oh, it's not, it's not about you, like why they do the Reddit. But I really think what it is about is it's not about me because it's really just about them being lonely and wanting community. And like, I think every time they express like an opinion where they hate me, they know that this is a place where that that's like the right thing to say and people will praise them and upvote their comment. And if they make a funny joke, putting me down, like people will respond to it and give them praise. And like, they just find um, like really meaningful community through hating me. And it honestly just brought me so much peace. So that is all I have to say to you if you are worried about it, because that really... <laughs> oh, we're not worried. We're just anticipating. Oh, okay. <laughs> it okay. is really the, the like crux of like commiseration, though, I think. These types of subreddits dedicated to like hating, hate obsessing over someone. Some people end up in like ended up in like tumblr communities for like i don't know some random anime or like an indie band and like i think this is their indie band but it sucks because you're a person and like it's i don't know and that's like a really i admire (laughs) like your stance on it it's like very pragmatic but i i don't know it's 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 insane. It took me truly five years to get there and three days of nonstop talking to these people. Like, even after the first, I don't know, 100, I was still like, maybe it was a fluke. Like, maybe, like, I was like, let's keep going tomorrow. And, like, even after that day, I was like, let's give it one more day just to see if, like, this really, like, is, like, the general, like, if this is a good reading on this group. But, um, yeah, if you ever have groups who, I don't know, talk shit about you guys, just know they're trying to find community. And it really helped me so much. And, like, we shot that. The Vice thing came out in February of this year, but we shot it in November of last year. And, honestly, never looked back. It's been amazing. Like, I really feel – yeah, so – if you ever no, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy but you have even a smaller version of that just know they just want community okay Hannah I love this next question so you but I'm also going to use the washroom while you ask okay. this because we're on a time cap and I drank a lot of tea I'll be back but okay, go, 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 go do your thing that's so funny I feel like she picked this question because she basically um oh my god Maya I love your outfit by the way oh my god thank <laughs> you but for the listeners at home, Maya is wearing this super cute, like, little khaki schoolgirl skirt and, um, like, a black, like, imagine, like, the hot girls in L.A. You know how they wear those, like, menswear vests, but they wear them as tops? And then she has these, like, clear, um, like, glasses that makes her look like she's, like, a very successful architect. This is her, like, favorite outfit. This is her, like, I'm going to be fashionable it's, outfit. It's working. So. And as it should be. It's very fashionable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, ask me this amazing question that she's so excited about. Oh, God, she's hyped it up. Um, No, it's... So I, I also don't want you to take offense to this because I know you're a Swifty and, and I am as well. But I've been researching Scooter Braun for a later episode on, like, Justin Bieber. And I, as much as I don't like him as a person, I'm, like... Damn, he's so savvy just learning about the ways that he would go on and, like, discover artists on, like, MySpace and then YouTube. And then reading Scammer and, like, 
you know, reading about how you would Google Kylie Jenner's Snapchat to, like, find the right journalists and just the way that you, like, kind of hacked into Instagram, like, I noticed parallels between the two of you, just in, like, strategy. And, like, I guess I was just curious if you think there's something about being, like, an early adopter of social media that, like, sets you up for a certain level of criticism that others might later be praised for. Like, I think if someone did maybe some of the things you did now, they might, it might be more accepted because we're used to influencers, but like being like an earlier adopter. Yeah, no, I actually don't think they would be praised for it now. I think the reason that I'm not praised for buying followers or buying ads is because those things took on different meanings in the sense that like, you know, to buy Instagram followers today is like it is to buy into a currency that can be cashed in for literal cash, but also free vacations, uh, cool handbags, cloudy friends. Like, you know, you can really, it's a really great tool to scam. But like before the word, this isn't just like 2014 before the word influencer existed, but when I bought those followers in 2013, this was, I think, less than two years after Instagram had been invented. It was still an app only like urban coastal teens had. And like, I really did it just to see the K on my username and to just like LARP fame. Like I just wanted to like cosplay in my own personal time when I opened my own media accounts, like being a famous author. And like, I... I say this in the book, but, like, I truly sound like a old person being, like, soda pop used to cost a nickel. Like, it truly cost me, like, four ninety nine to buy those 40K followers. And then on top of that, when I t- took out ads for myself, I was paying $50 per 10, per 10 ad package. So that's $5 a sponsored post on accounts that had, like, hundreds of thousands of followers. And, like, those book fandom accounts where I took out the ads, they thought I was throwing my money away. They were like, are you sure? And, like, it was just – I think people judge me for doing that because all of that behavior has, like – it just has developed much more – much different connotations. Like, people who take out ads are not personal people anymore. They're brands doing ads actual advertising budget marketing and to buy buy followers you think of like um scammers who like want to like look like they have lots of followers so that they can like scam people to like i don't know sign up for their like bitcoin currency whatever like you know like i just think the behaviors that i did i think i get shit for them not because someone would be looked on more kindly if they did them now I actually think it's the exact opposite I think we look less kindly on those behaviors now than when I did them back in 2013 and 2014 and because of that people um sort of attach modern day connotations to events from the past that happened before those connotations even existed I guess what I mean more is like obviously the act of buying followers is like something we have like a different outlook on now but your savviness with social media I don't know I just I think about people who like come up as influencers now and like who are able to attract attention and I feel like we're just less hostile in receiving them now because it's just so oversaturated we're so used to it that's so true I felt bullied 
about my Instagram at Cambridge. Like, yeah, everyone invited me to their parties and wanted to be invited to mine. But like also every time I put up a post, I knew it would circulate in like group chats. And like, I don't think, I think that if I went to Cambridge again today with the same amount of followers, I think it would be like a lot cooler. You know, like I think it would be like a lot less sneered at. So we actually spoke in our podcast episode about you, uh, about how you seem to use the scammer label. It feels like sometimes as a means of assuaging the amount of hate thrown your way online, like kind of this sort of like deflection or this like protective barrier. Um, But I honestly felt throughout the book that you, to me, you aren't as much of a scammer, you know, in the way that you aren't intending to hurt people, but you're more of like a schemer. Like every scam you commit in the book that you call a scam, like flaking on the book deal, creating an OnlyFans or selling tarot cards, you're kind of doing it to survive. Like it's always to pay off some sort of debt. Do you feel like a little bit trapped by the word scammer or do you feel like it speaks true to you? First of all, I love this phonetic wordplay. I'm not a scammer. I'm a schemer. (laughs) I'm absolutely, I'm taking that. I'm putting it in my pocket. Um, Next time you read a book of mine, expect to see that printed in there. I'm not a scammer. I'm a schemer. I love it. But do I feel trapped by it? A little bit. I mean, I definitely, like, didn't choose it for myself. So, like, that – yeah, I guess I do feel, like, a little bit – whatever burden you get from, like, anything in life that you, like, didn't choose is – is I think there's another failure of language there for, like, whatever that – feeling of burden is and I definitely think that's there but you know I also like the savvy business person in me also sees it as like such a great opportunity like it's not like people labeled me with a word that is like uninteresting or that like can't be absolutely fucking milked for everything it's worth to like sell books like thank god they Like, it was a word that's like, we had the summer of scam, and we're so interested in scammers, and scam this, and scammer that, and it's, like, such a juicy word, and I'm so glad I got to, like, lock it down for my book title, and on top of that, it feels really good to call a book that, because, like, I don't know if you're familiar with, like, how Google prioritizes SEO, like, search engine optimization, but in order to get, like, when you have new press coming out about you, Google will... Like, especially if the press say, like, you know, a, a Vogue, New Yorker, Washington Post article will obviously be prioritized. But say it's something sort of smaller, like um, Dazed or the Toronto Star, just something that, like, has an audience, but it's not as big as, like, the prime things that Google prioritizes. But you want people to see these articles because, like, they're positive. If those articles use keywords that are used in the other articles about you that have gotten lots of clicks, like if Google recognizes this as a continuation or an expansion of like an, a keyword narrative that's already been established around your name, Google will push out those. Same with uh, Apple News and like pushing out those articles. And like it's just it's so great that by using scammer, I get to push out all these rave reviews of my book. I get to make these giant like algorithmic uh, powerhouses, like do the labor for me of pushing out these like rave reviews to all of the people who participated in like clicking those original articles. So like, I just like, yeah, it sucks. I didn't choose it for myself, but like, boy, do I feel like I've played the shit out of the hand I was dealt, you know? 
Yeah, and I think I think you've played it well. And I think that's something that everyone's always trying to is always discussing with your persona is like, did she plan this? Did she not plan this? Is she just kind of like trying to mold something out of the chaos? You know, like going off of the idea of, you know, all the good press that you've been getting. Um, I just wanted to know, like, what your experience on social media has been like now that, you know, the book is doing so well, people are having these really glowing write-ups about it. Like, do you feel the tide has turned it all on, like, Caroline Calloway? Oh, my God, so much. Like, I never thought I'd live to see the day. I mean, even podcasters who once uh, allegedly did an episode (laughs) saying that the book would never come out have called me an accomplished writer. So, like, I do feel like it's really – yeah, I I genuinely feel like it's really – I feel really vindicated and like to say that I won is like a strange verb because it's like what what were the rules of the game what was the prize like where's the end it's like obviously it's not over I have two more books I want to put out this year but like I I do feel very much like yeah it's just it's just nice it's just so nice yeah it's I know that's such a boring answer but it's true and I honestly am trying hard not to like complicate or like especially as someone who like takes so much gabapentin for anxiety and whose father literally killed himself like I'm trying not to overthink this happiness like it's just I felt like for four years I could not catch a fucking break you know it's like my ex-best friend betrayed me to the god I went viral as a scam my father died my grandma died my mom got cancer my stepdad died like everyone was dropping like flies and it was a bad time online and now that people love the book and are praising it and the, uh, the comments now are just like what a lovely place to be like I like love reading comments I try to respond to like all like if there are a hundred comments or 400 comments on a post like I'll really try to respond to all of them and I always seem to fall short of that goal but like I really I spend one of the things I do in a the morning when I answer emails is I just respond to comments as well because it's just so just so nice and it makes me so happy and I'm so grateful. I think it's fair that you you're letting yourself languish in the in the joy of it. And I think I think you've earned it. Like Thank I really you. enjoyed the book. I think so we both did. I I will send you guys hard copies of the book, by the way. We read the digital watermark for anyone wondering. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well that was only because we were I thought we were recording last Wednesday and I was like, there's no way a physical <laughs> copy is gonna get to you in time. I, so I will send you a book, but it will be three weeks. I think it's a good book and I'm I want people I want people to have it and pass it down to their kids. Or sell it at auction for Christie's a tidy sum since you have one of those first editions. I like the jump between those two goals. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of the two. Like heirloom sentimentality or like get your bag, girl. Like whatever you do with the first edition, I support it. Like that, it's going to be a flex to have a copy of Scammer. <laughs> 